For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how a food pantry at Imago Day Middle School is bringing families closer together and helping them to get through the pandemic. During this time of limited travel and tourism, how is one couple working together to keep the historic Gadsden Hotel in business? And I'll talk with Genevieve Anderson, the filmmaker behind Dust One, a drama about life, death, and trust on the U.S.-Mexico border. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucson Unified School District made the decision to close public schools in March in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, TUSD organized 12 bus routes to deliver free grab-and-go breakfasts and lunches to children in our community. The schedules of those bus routes can be found online at TUSD1.org. One middle school, Imago Day, a private school that serves low-income families, decided to go even farther. In addition to free meals for students, Imago Day offers support through their Family Pantry, a program that was in operation before the pandemic. Cameron Taylor, head of Imago Day Middle School, talks about how the Family Pantry helped create a more connected school community during the pandemic in this story produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. We are a private middle school serving grades 5 through 8, but we are tuition-free and we serve only low-income families. So the only qualification for admission into the school is financial and economic. All of our kids qualify for free and reduced lunch. So that means that we get kids with um, a very wide range of school history and background and academic ability. And we also have a very diverse student and family body as far as where people are from and their backgrounds and ethnicities and that kind of stuff. About a quarter of our population are refugees mostly from Central Africa, and a lot of our families are immigrants, so it's a pretty cool place. Besides educational programs for students, Taylor says Imago Day has a family services program with skill-based workshops and classes for parents. Part of that program is a family pantry, and the seed was a donation Randomly, a, a longtime friend of the school said, hey, somebody just offered me, you know, several hundred cans of, uh, of canned food, canned goods. Could you use them? We said, sure. And, and we doled them out. And, and in that process, realized that there was great need for that kind of assistance. Taylor says it took the school several months to build the pantry and find partners. The family pantry opened in spring 2018 after the school received a grant from Casa Adobe Rotary Club that was used to acquire freezers and commercial refrigeration. 
And then we began partnering with a few different organizations. We receive fresh produce and meats and groceries of all kinds from Trader Joe's uh, three times weekly. And then we also receive dry goods and household products from Midwest Community Food Bank a couple times a month. And we have a partnership with the Ishkashita Refugee Network that provides citrus and other produce to families. We've been able to, again, partner with other kind of organizations doing similar kind of work to provide three days a week during the regular school year, pantry shopping days. On distribution days, the pantry served an average of 30 families, or around 500 people. After school operations were suspended because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the pantry was kept open as a curb pickup. The service was available two days a week. Our pantry participation has definitely increased with a high of about 56 families um, participating, but we're averaging probably around 45 families. In the school currently, we have 55 separate families. So it's nearly all of the families each week are coming in. And some are coming in every other week and some are coming in both days. It just kind of varies. And then there's a few alumni families as well, but our rate has definitely gone up at the moment. Every family receives a box of food that weighs around 25 pounds. The content depends on what is available from suppliers and may change seasonally and even weekly, according to Taylor. Typically a gallon or two of milk, oftentimes eggs, definitely a couple different kinds of meat, some fresh, some frozen. And then oftentimes we'll get boxed or canned soup and then a variety of fresh produce. The head of Imago Day School notes that the vulnerable population they serve was hit especially hard by the pandemic's impact on income. Currently, things are up in the air and our families are being impacted by the current global economic situation at a pretty high rate. At the moment, we're, we're definitely experiencing an increased rate of unemployment and family members being furloughed or decreased hours or let go altogether. And a lot of our parents and family members are independent contractors as well. And so a lot of those jobs have gone away and they're no longer receiving benefits or they're not eligible for certain benefits. So, so right now, things are definitely very trying for the community. Although the pantry was initially created to strengthen the food security of the school population, it has had the side effect of becoming a gateway for parents to become more involved with the school community. It's really been the impetus for building a stronger community and a more connected community. And it couldn't have happened at a better time considering what we're all going through now. As we face the challenges, you know, just like all schools are facing right now, the kind of the challenges of remote learning and not being connected with each other every day. The fact that we have been able to build such strong relationships with our family members and our students and their families has helped us unbelievably during you know these difficult times. We're having really, really high attendance rates with our remote learning. 80, 90, 95% of kids are, are showing up to all their Zoom classes. And parents are attending weekly parent meetings and kids are turning in work. And so I think that Programs like the pantry and family services as a whole have just put us in a position to handle something crazy like what's happening in the world right now a little bit better. Um, it's still really hard, 
it's still very challenging. But the fact that we've had these other opportunities to grow so close and to just have such a strong community has made the past couple months a little bit more bearable. This story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya as part of her University of Arizona graduation project in journalism. As such, it was begun before the pandemic and then updated with new interviews recorded after the stay-at-home orders took effect. It offers a unique snapshot of the state of food security in this region in early 2020. You can find all five episodes of the series on our webpage at azpm.org. Across the state, a growing number of businesses are getting ready to reopen. Governor Doug Ducey says barbers and hair salons may resume business on Friday, May 8th, and dine-in restaurants can follow suit on Monday, May 11th. That's a big relief for some merchants, but others plan to take gradual steps on their way to establishing what many are calling the new normal. Tony Paniagua has our story. The historic Gatson Hotel is a famous four-story building in downtown Douglas, a recognizable landmark just a few blocks from the border with Mexico. Ever since it opened in 1907, it has attracted ranchers, miners, and many others, including producers for movies and television shows. In 2016, more than 100 years after its inauguration, the Gatson garnered the attention of two other people. Now, they play a pivotal role in its many chapters. It is just filled with so much charm and character and history. When Douglas residents Florencio and Donnell Lopez heard the notable hotel might be closing, the couple sprung into action and purchased the property. Anel is originally from California. We've lived here now for about 12 years. This was home to our kids and we just didn't want to see it go down and, and be shut forever. Three years later, in the fall of 2019, their endless hours of sweat and tears were paying off. We added our speakeasies, we added another bar, we remodeled the restaurant, we remodeled the cafe, um, and just business was growing and just trying to keep up with it. And we had 32 employees at that time when it was still booming. We needed to add about five more because we couldn't keep up with the volume and the momentum. It was growing faster than what we could keep up with. But it all came to a screeching halt in March due to the coronavirus. Instead of hires, there were layoffs. Just a few employees remain. They work part-time while Anel and her husband make up the difference, about 160 hours a week between both of them. We run a 24-hour business, so we have to make sure we have 24-hour coverage. So and this is kind of our own lockdown. <laughs> it's a nice fortress to be in, but yes, it's, it's, it's just very sad. Um, I think it's, what's more disheartening for me are my, my employees. Some of the hotel's 22 available rooms are still being rented by essential travelers for trips like medical or federal contracts. Everything else is suspended. You have to remember our business encompasses everything, bar, restaurant, events. You know, we were hosting, you know, two to three different events, whether it's my conference room, whether my lobby a week, and I have zero. You know, that that is where we really bring in our revenue. Anel says she would love to get back to her pre-COVID-19 pandemic schedules, but she just can't risk it right now. She worries about her staff, her guests, and her own family and friends. It's difficult. Like every business owner, you know, where you put your heart and soul into your business. You know, we've built this from 
everything personal we've owned, you know, from our savings, retirement accounts to build this what we have. And at the same time, though, are we really going to ruin everything just because we want to make a few dollars? There's a lot to think about, she says. Even her efforts to constantly sanitize are being hindered by the current backlog of supplies. When I have 20 to 30 people walking through, how often are we going to have to be sanitizing? The products are not available either. I mean, you can't find Clorox wipes in the stores. You can't order them online. I need those to be wiping down doors, wiping down phones, wiping down all those surfaces. So those are those daily products we need to be able to open the doors. And I'm concerned about not having that available to protect us as a staff. It's a situation Anel Lopez never imagined when she and her husband bought the property in 2016. We're not going to be able to be hosting large events for quite a while. You know, and I don't even know what the bar is going to look like when we do reopen. How are, is everyone going to be distanced apart, you know, six feet when uh, every, I think, I don't know the square footage, but we, we need to be able to sit next to one another to be able to, to survive, honestly, to fill it up. The historic Gatson Hotel was rebuilt after a devastating fire in 1928. It has also survived decades of economic slumps and uncertainties, so Anel is trying to remain optimistic. Maybe, she says, just maybe, a semblance of normalcy will return in a few months. A dream would be, you know, around September, <laughs> honestly. And that's really our kickoff again uh, for our season when we start to see all those travelers, when all the snowbirds start to come back into town. Um, summer, we anticipate it. You know, the summer months are always very slow, but the fall would be really nice to get back onto track um, with the way we used to be. Slowly, she says, and hopefully with no more surprises. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Baniagua reporting from Douglas. Show respect. He served in Afghanistan. He was dust one. A dust one? I thought you were military. Army. I know what a dust one is. Duty status, whereabouts unknown. Okay, well, Kenny disappeared. His disappearance were never resolved, and he was denied his benefits and dishonorably discharged. Hmm. Sounds like Kenny got what he deserved. All I know is he's still flying the flag trying to be a good American. We leave him alone. The independent movie Dust One doesn't offer answers to the debate over migration across the U.S.-Mexico border. But through the perspectives of its small cast of four characters, it does reveal something about the complexity of the situation. Filmmaker Genevieve Anderson, a former resident of Tubac, has a strong eye for detail, and in collaboration with cinematographer Tomas Arceo, they've created a cinematic version of the Borderlands that is both familiar and dreamlike. Dust One is one of many current films that have had their chances for a theatrical exhibition and festivals cut short, but Video On Demand and a partnership with Latin Heat Cinema are making it possible for viewers to see what this film has to say. 
It came from living there for four years and having a stepbrother in Border Patrol and having um, a very dear friend who's a staunch conservative and, you know, working with the Samaritans, some having migrants cross through my backyard, having my own encounters, realizing like this is a lot more complex than anybody really knows. So for me, in a way, it was important to bracket the drama, if that makes any sense, which is why the film is is sort of theatrical and um, operates a lot like a play and that this is a make-believe environment with characters that are outlines more than they are fully fleshed characters. So the two central characters, Marta and Kenny, it was really important that all of this other stuff exist around them and that the, the center of it really be the simplicity of one person being kind to another and, and, and not, you know, go down the road of, of any particular political or dramatic aspect that the film only touches on, like veterans history. Oh, my God. It could be a whole movie or Marta's history. It could be a whole movie, the, the experience of the, the migrant and, and even the Border Patrol agents, another history, super interesting and complex. I like this idea of proprietary patriotism, right? It's sort of like, who does America belong to? And, and how did you come to that conclusion that it's more yours because you live on this side? When you talk about this side and that side, there's an interesting device that's used in the film. And it, I think it goes back to what you said about it being somewhat like a play. And that is the wall that uh, Kenny has built. It's a section of wall, maybe 30 feet or so from end to end. And it acts as a demarcation point in the play for inside and outside, even though everything is outside. And it's really funny how Kenny, when he goes through the door, it's like he's home. You know, he assumes this body language of like, ah, I'm here in my house now. But he's all he's done is walk through the sort of ramshackle, rusted out door in the middle of his wall. Tell me a little about the physicality of building Kenny's camp, which is the central location for the film. The genesis of it was really um, my friend, uh, Shay Lopez, whose family has lived in that area for like 40 years. And they run a landscaping business. And all of those, the, the materials that his wall was built from, um, are already on the property. I knew that I wanted to make a movie about what was happening in Southern Arizona. And Kenny is someone I actually worked with like 25 years ago at the Los Angeles Mental Health Association. So he's a real person. He wasn't a veteran, but everything that he says and the whole character is based on someone real. But the wall itself, I felt like I loved this idea of someone being like being kicked out of being a service person. And I should being mention- Being kicked out of society in a lot Kicked of out of society, which is, so he's in exile and Marta's in exile. And they both share the designation, duty, status, whereabouts, unknown. Nobody knows where they are. Nobody knows what they are up to. And Kenny doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing, even though he wants to serve because he hears the panic voices on the radio saying, got to build a wall, got to build a wall. So he builds a wall, but he builds it through, it's like through the eyes of a child or through the eyes of a madman. And I feel like they- at least in my work with people who suffer from mental illness, they tend to synthesize the bigger themes in life, good and evil, light and dark, in ways that are so compelling. And so I liked this wall as an idea of he takes it totally seriously, but the wall's absurd, just like walls, our wall is absurd. And, and not the wall itself, because I'm not opposed to wall. I'm not opposed to division. I like fences, right? I like the idea that, you know, you know, fences make happy neighbors or something about that idea that certain <laughs> yeah. divisions make things run more smoothly. And I'm this is not a protest about the wall. It's a protest about the the politics of of division and of xenophobia, that that absurdity that a wall makes one person legitimate and another person not legitimate. That's what that wall is about. So 
hopefully we do that in a way that isn't heavy handed. It's playful. And again, it's sort of like a fable. It's symbolic. It's not meant to be didactic or literal in any way. Another thing that clouds the debate over undocumented migration is the motives. In this film, you've given Marta a very specific motivation, um, but I think it highlights the fact that she's not acting out of a self-interest or a greed or an idea that she can get to the United States and then take it easy and take advantage of our social systems and so forth to the extent that she can while being undocumented. Instead, she has an entirely emotional and personal reason for making the journey. Which is so many people, and that's that's an important thing Again, there's no solving this overnight, but when certain unnamed individuals in government clump everybody into one group, like they're all this, and they're stealing your job, and they're raping your children, and they're bringing drugs over, and they're animals, and this and that. It's like, whoa, 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 people, please. There are many stories. They're human beings, and many of them have histories that far you know, precede this weird borderline called the United States and Mexico. They forget that. And, and I have encountered people. I encountered a migrant working with the Samaritans who had come over four times, and he was lost from his group. He had sold his house, you know, and he needed to get to a family member um, who needed him. And he was lost, and he came, he chose to come to us, and I had asked him in Spanish, like, how did you know that we weren't going to turn you in? And he said, I asked God. And I was, I was floored, A, by, by his tenacity, by, you know, how, how many of us would do that, sell our house and walk across the desert? Nobody's doing that because they think it's fun or because it's going to be better. Or maybe it's better over there. They do so because they have to. That, coupled with this notion of a, a faith that supersedes anything that we seem to practice you know, in our culture here, that you trust your higher power so much you know, that you're going to put everything at stake to do what you must do. You know? And I'm called you know, a bleeding heart because I'm looking at the human aspect of it. And like, oh, my God. <laughs> really? I mean, I, I think we all must look at the human part of it. We have to. Even if we disagree, we have to look at that part. When I first met you, it was because we were shooting a television piece about a project you were doing, and it was a film that was made on a sort of micro scale starring very small puppets. This film is completely rooted in the real physical world with real human actors. What's the contrast there? What did you find about doing this production that you maybe found freeing or actually perhaps limiting in the capacity that you might have if you were shooting it with puppets? I love working with puppets, and I, I think, you know, you know I work with puppets not because I like puppets, but because puppets are uh, a way of uh, channeling, um, a higher way of seeing. You know, the puppet is something that it's symbolic, again, of, of the life force. And I think we receive story in a more acute way when we're looking at the puppet figure. And I found in doing this, I didn't really know until halfway through, I'm like, oh, I'm doing the same thing that I do with puppets, which is that... Again, it's, it's a set and, and, and characters who I felt like I was bringing together, not unlike with the puppets, in an, almost in an improvisational way to this, this place to perform a play about compassion. So I saw myself working with actors in the same way I tend to work with puppets. And I found that I really liked actors. I actually can't wait to work with actors again. These were really wonderful people and loved working with them. I just found myself working with them in a similar way than I do with the puppets, which is that I want the audience to see this story and not to get too wrapped up in people or their particulars or their backstories or their wardrobe. It's like everything needed to be very deliberate and formal 
so that the story could come through in a more fluid way. That was my intention. There was an experience I had when I saw Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen for the first time when I was a kid, and that was that I got incredibly thirsty. And I had a kind of a similar reaction during Dust One, and it made me think that, you know, for every minute that we spend with the characters out under the sun and and in that terrain, you were out there for hours or days. So do you feel like you learned any lessons from shooting in that terrain about what it represents and the effect that terrain has on those who must cross through it? Well, I opted to shoot it in August during monsoon season precisely because I wanted to capture the desert at at its most dangerous, I suppose, because you've got not just the heat, but you've got the threat of lightning and and the flooding and all of this stuff. So it was absolutely a deliberate decision to do it so that the energy of that would be in the film. And and we did have, I yeah was almost um, struck by lightning about 10 days before we started shooting. And I actually have it on film because I was out shooting bugs <laughs> in my front yard in, in Tubac and the lightning bolt hit the tree right next to me. And anyway, my son flew back and hit his head and he thought he was hit and the tree was on fire. It was really dramatic. So I felt like Mother Nature was like, okay, don't don't mess around because this is really serious, you know, and people could get hurt. So please be careful. And then we had flooding. The, the set flooded a couple of times. We had to redo shooting. One person had to go to the hospital um, for heat stroke. That did happen, one of the PAs, um, the second week. I tried to hire as many people as I could from Tucson. I had this wonderful Tucson crew. And they, they all know how to deal with the heat. It was the people who came from L.A. <laughs> that were like, it's hot. <laughs> yes, it's hot. <laughs> yes, this is Arizona in the desert. I need you to understand that a lot of people want to get into this country illegally. And it's our job, my job and yours, to protect our border and to send these people back where they came from. Yes, ma'am. All the bad people. You gotta keep them out. No. I'll send them back. No, Kenny, not just the bad people. All undocumented people. Do you understand? It's our job. It's not because they're bad. It's just their job, plain and simple. My guest was filmmaker Genevieve Anderson, the writer and director of Dust One. You can watch the trailer on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org and find details about an online watch party and benefit happening on Thursday, May 14th on the Latin Heat Cinema streaming platform. There's more information at dustonemovie.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.